This is Report to Wyoming. Today I'm talking with Jay Yu, the founder and executive chairman for a new company called Nano Nuclear Energy Incorporated, and Nano CEO and nuclear physicist and head of reactor development, James Walker, about uranium and why it's reached a 15-year high and what they think this means for the industry. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a charged nuclear physicist. Um, my professional background doing that was I used to work for the UK Ministry of Defence as a uh, nuclear engineer in charge of construction of um, manufacturing facilities to produce reactor cores. Um, th- those were for submarines, and I was also the chief engineer um, in the construction of a nuclear fuel reclamation plant as well. Um, I, I used to get seconded to Rolls-Royce, where I worked as a physicist um, in, in the design of nuclear reactors for the next generation of nuclear submarines, and uh, as a thermal hydrolysist on more of the mechanical side of things. Um, I, I did move over to North America, when the nuclear industry looked like it was on decline, and got more involved in capital markets and public companies and IPOs. And, and that's how I met um, our chairman and founder, Jay. Yes, uh, nice to meet you, um, Jay Yu, founder and chairman of Nano Nuclear Energy. Uh, my background is I'm a capital markets person, uh, individual, professional. I worked at, at an investment bank uh, during uh you know, the big meltdown, I would say, big bank meltdown in 2008. I decided to take the money I saved up and invested into kind of startups and pre-IPO companies. And uh, since then, uh, I've invested in hundreds of companies. These days, I invest in myself and into surrounding myself with the best people in the world, like James. And we've created something special here uh, with nanonuclear in a, in a very timely um, market, I would say. How would you describe nanonuclear? Like, just break it down in the most simplest terms. What is it? Um, I would say it's a vertically integrated nuclear energy company. And by that, I mean it's a nuclear energy company that ultimately wants to produce microreactors to power energy systems. But it's also looking at every part of that cycle. So fuel creation, fuel transportation, um, sourcing material. So it's it's a diversified, multifaceted business that wants to be involved in every aspect of the nuclear energy industry. So you guys are feeling pretty optimistic, and that's probably an understatement about the future of nuclear energy. <clears throat> I, I would say um, when, when we started talking about um, starting the company a few years ago, there was no real appetite for nuclear energy. And this might be the best-timed startup um, I've ever seen because um, almost as soon as we did get started, the interest from both government and industry ramped up enormously in, in the nuclear energy sector. And now it's it's pretty much white hot. So you get COP28 announcing they want to triple the world's nuclear output or the UK offer wanting to quadruple it. Um, you've got massive funding opportunities now coming out of the United States government for big nuclear infrastructure projects and funding opportunities. Um, it's um, now the appetite for nuclear is maybe the, the biggest it's ever been in the history of nuclear energy. So um, optimistic, certainly. Like we, we positioned ourselves incredibly well at a time when there was little interest in time for taking advantage of all the interest that's now there. The price for uranium, it just went up so dramatically in a short amount of time. What do you think is a factor there? What's causing that, the frenzy, if you will? <clears throat> so um, 
I mean, the uranium um, price did really respond to market interest. Is that suddenly um, countries, even the United States, as an example, like what the United States was previously doing prior to, say, um, the Ukrainian war was it was buying all of its enriched material from Russia, almost all of it, and it was, and it was stockpiling it. And that allowed its own infrastructure to atrophy. So it, could, it wasn't really um, capable of enriching material um, to serve its own um, defense programs or civil programs. And when, say, the Ukrainian war happened, or uh, as an example, countries began to look at energy sovereignty and the conclusion they all they all almost came to was nuclear has to be the way that we do that. And um, mm. as soon as the government began to invest enormous amounts of money in reconstructing uh, infrastructure, and we see that US, uh, in countries that have no need for energy background, um, like the Philippines or Indonesia or those sort of regions, they're now looking at nuclear energy as well. That's caused enormous interest, obviously, in the uranium, that the source of the power for this. And so it really is just a reflection of the changing attitude, um, uh, the global attitude towards nuclear. There are also other factors mm. that are featured in this too. So for instance, like um, a few years ago, like Germany, as an example, moved away from wanting to get involved in nuclear energy and wants to get more involved in wind and solar to, uh, to supplement its energy systems. And, that actually resulted in the country not having enough power and energy bill skyrocketed. So they had to buy um, energy from Poland, which was generated by coal, or, or buy energy from France that was generated by nuclear. And so they lost energy sovereignty and bills went up and their carbon emissions went up too. So it was all in all a disaster. So they have to pile back into nuclear now. Um, and even the Japanese that wanted to scale down on their nuclear are going back into nuclear again. And that has all contributed to this massive rise in uranium prices. I just want to quickly add, if you look at also the macro uh, picture throughout the world with COP28, you know, tripling nuclear um, until 2050 to reach net zero goals, each country that means it has to build up their kind of arsenal of nuclear, uh, nuclear energy supplies, which is uh, you know, uranium being the, the the foundation of this. So all these kind of um, investors, retail, institutional, uh, are now pouring in, and all these uranium stocks are rising because everyone knows there's a little bit of uranium out there, um, and and obviously not enough mines or even junior mining companies that are coming out because most of them eventually will fail uh but a few of them will will get into production but in order to get into production you've got to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to do this and this causes massive dilution in in companies so the ones that actually survive are going to be the the ones providing this commodity but there's not enough so there's essentially a crunch that's happening here and now wall street is it's taken hold of this and, and, and it's knowledgeable about this crunch. So now this driving up the spot price. And I, and I think today it reached well over a hundred dollars. Um, so now it's just getting to a point where the retail market is pouring into this and, and there's just not enough of this fundamental commodity to, to, to push towards this 
the, the tripling of nuclear energy. So that's the big crunch here. And, and I think that's what's exciting a lot of uh, just investors around the world. Yeah, and that's exciting for Wyomingites. If um, we consider how much uranium we have, it occurs to me that maybe this is something that legislators should be looking at very seriously. One mine just went back into operation. It was an old mine. Are you guys eyeing Wyoming and wondering also why we aren't doing more mining right now? I uh, think, so um, well, well, James, you could go. You go first. No, I was just going to say there are... <laughs> There was an opportunity brought to us um, in 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 an asset in Wyoming. Um, I could have got it involved in another asset that was, um, you know, as a private investor as well. So there are a lot of things coming out of the state. Uh, we we uh, nano nuclear does have a, a subsidiary. Uh, it's called American Uranium, and we are looking and we're actively searching for. Uh, uranium assets. Um, so, you know, we could end up being in Wyoming. So if you you have any, let us know as well. If you have any uh, geologists there sitting on, on on land that they they think is rich in uranium, hey, mm -hmm. we might be interested. I can tell you Wyoming has one of the largest uranium deposits in the world. So. Oh, yeah, we know that. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I know that sounds... Yeah, James could add more. What, what were you going to say, James? Well, I was going to add... Yeah, I, I was going to mention, actually, that Wyoming has enormous deposits of uranium. The, the only problem I think that the mining industry has is usually the lead time from... You know the uranium is in the ground to a mining operation. It can be a lot of, a lot of the time. Um, say, for instance, you're looking really at a year of exploration um, which needs permanent times maybe so maybe that takes out a bit more then you need to build a mining plan and need feasibility studies and then pre-feasibility and then definitive bankable feasibility studies and this can really and then you need to install infrastructure and mining um, and mine works too and sometimes that process can be five to six years and so a lot of a lot of um, groups are looking for nearer term developed projects um, that doesn't mean to say that these um, greenfield mining projects won't get developed uh, or won't start to get developed rapidly now, but the lead time can be quite slow. And so Wyoming should benefit because the good thing about nuclear, the nuclear renaissance is that the demand in five years is still going to be there, if not more. Um, but it's going to take the state a little while just to catch up with the demand and well, producing to meet that demand the exclusivity of it or the commodity of uranium that's what's driving prices up so with the growing demand i guess what i was trying to get at is are we able to meet that or is it do you anticipate that prices will just continue to rise i um, think we're go ahead james you first no, 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 you go ahead. I... no i was just gonna say from the looks of just the numbers mm -hmm. there's there's obviously um uh, like uh, physical trusts of uranium. I think it, it's called Sprott Physical Trust. They literally have gone out and bought all, all this uranium supply out of the market. So you have actual institutional and sophisticated investors that are coming in and take and, and loading up on this, you could say, on the physical commodity, and then actually listing it as a, as, as a tradable um, asset. Right. And so everyone's pouring into that. Um, 
the, the, the tradable assets. So you have that. You have institutional and sophisticated investors buying it physically. All these governments are now hungry for nuclear energy, right? Because okay. it's clean energy. So you have that going on. You have sophisticated investors. And then you have retail guys just trying to figure out where to go. So they're just going to buy anything that's, you know, on, on the stock market. Um, and, and, and also just like Jane said, just in order to actually mine it and get it into production, it takes many years and it takes so much funding that I, I don't see how this is not going to go up. It's just the numbers is, is, is here and, and it's being crunched. Yeah. And I would just add that I think in the short term, it's going to be very difficult to meet the demand that's emerging right now. But like America is, as a whole country is incredibly resource rich, but um, it's almost been undermined because it's been able to source material from somewhere else. Now, Obviously, that's an issue because it takes mines a while to ramp up, but it could meet a significant portion of its domestic uh, uranium requirements once those mines are in production. But it's going to take a bit of a lead time, unfortunately, to get there. And until then, it's going to have to source uranium from places like Kazakhstan or Central Asia, where they are big producers of this already, and they've always been producers. Um, and it'd be interesting to see, actually, uh, Australia have enormous quantities of uranium, but I, I think they actually have a, a ban on mining this stuff. I, maybe I'm wrong on that, but... Um, no, I think, I think, yeah, I did read about that. Um, I think the, the country has a, a total ban on nuclear, I believe. They, there's a lot of advocates right now um, popping up that are voicing their opinions and saying, we need nuclear. So I think the whole country is... They don't have regulatory aspects around nuclear. It's kind of like Germany shutting down all its reactors. They're just anti-nuclear right now. But once again, it's enormous mineral welfare in uranium. So having another country like that um, pop up and and add to the to the supply chain will, will, will be will be great. But that's not happening. Interesting. So if I understand you guys correctly, right now is a great time to invest in uranium. Um, I'm not a, a Wall Street analyst, but we're, we're building companies around that. So I, I think I'm bullish. I'm personally bullish. Um, I hope James is too. <laughs> so. I mean, the annoying part is that we knew this was coming, and um, I should have bought some of the stock um, uh, in the in the property here. Um, you know, I, we, we feel like we'll become a unicorn ourselves as well, so... Um, Okay. Right now, what we're focusing on is is a whole vertically integrated model where we're able to. One of our subsidiaries is called American Uranium, where we we actively pursue that in the future. Not right now, but in the future, if we let's say we find a great asset in Wyoming, right, we would have no problem coming in there and and investing in, 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 into the land and, and into drilling or whatever we need to, to, to move forward. So we want from inception, the commodity, then we want, um, the fuel fabrication, uh, for these small reactors for, for the future, which we plan to do as well. And then eventually also transportation. Um, it's great that you have all this stuff, but how do you transport it around? So we're looking at transportation, new technology around the transportation side. And then finally, into our reactors, which is 
essentially a nuclear battery on a truck, um, if you could imagine that. So it's portable. Um, think of natural disaster relief, uh, remote communities like up north in Canada, where they primarily run on fossil fuels and diesel generators. So we could essentially replace these diesel generators with carbon-free uh, energy solutions. And then um, ultimately, we want to actually grow this internationally, too, because of the big movement and the and, and the nuclear renaissance around the world. We actually want to get into different countries and help support governments there um you know nanos comprise of a world-class scientists and not only that a world-class former national leaders and policy makers as well so we could actually work on multiple ends of of of, of the spectrum i would say and then you know our leadership team with me and james we have a i would say a a, a different approach to a nuclear energy company, the traditional or historic nuclear energy company, because we're looking at this from a business perspective, not an academic exercise like many of these other companies have done before. Where are you guys headquartered? We're headquartered in New York City, and then um, we're planning to have multiple manufacturing hubs across the U.S. Uh, we, we are planning to build our fuel fabrication for Halu in Idaho in conjunction with Idaho National Labs. Yeah, we're, we're kind of a, a shifting and moving area, but the corporate headquarters is, is in New York City. As far as like the business, the ethics behind this, I can understand the business perspective of it and pursuing the money, but why nuclear energy? What draws you to that? So this, um, actually Nano didn't start as, um, uh, nuclear energy company. I, I, I'm speaking for Jay a little bit here, but we um, there was a realization that there was going to be a massive problem with energy supply in the future. The, the the future of energy needed to be determined because enormous amounts of money was going into renewables and they weren't seeing the returns that they were hoping for in terms of energy output. So there was inconsistency. There was enormous storage costs which hadn't been factored in. There was much more land usage. Um, and the capacity factors were low. And so it, it looked like there needed to be some sort of redress to to address like um, this shortfall. And really, when you looked at the energy landscape, the only real solution to the future energy problems was nuclear. And that's really how nano began. Um, nuclear had the highest capacity factor, which means consistency, um, beating out of you know, gas or oil um, or, or diesel or anything like that. Um, combined with the fact it could be locationally put anywhere, um, so it wasn't it wasn't situationally dependent on it needing enough sun or needing enough wind, and it, it actually provided a lot of energy sovereignty, which a lot of countries are, are, are lacking. Like, um, uh, say with Germany when it shut down its nuclear power plants, or Japan, for instance, when it tried to move away from nuclear, it ended up very dependent on oil exports from the East. So, it, nuclear was. Obviously, the direction things were going in when you took a, a sober, objective look at things. But when we realized that and we began analyzing the, the nuclear space itself, um, we got involved in the microreactor side of things because we realized we believed that was the potential largest market. And for the reasons Jay mentioned in his previous answer, um, if we were creating microreactors, there were hundreds of thousands of potential destinations for this. So remote habitation, remote oil and gas projects, remote industry, um, charging stations for EV vehicles, putting them on maritime vessels, 
powering um, uh, AI centers and data centers for industry, uh, military bases. Um, and for that reason, um, we were, that's why we steered in the nuclear space into the micro reactor um, area. And from there, actually, that's where we started branching out into other industries like fuel manufacture and fuel transportation. If we're anticipating that the future, this might be something that changes the world, why do you think it's a good idea? Well, um, it's it's a good idea. One, it provides energy sovereignty for countries. So when you do end up with situations like the Ukrainian conflict, where the U.S. and Russia are now at odds with each other, but the U.S. is still heavily dependent on imports from, of enriched uranium material from Russia. So that obviously stifles enormous amounts diplomatic power that the country is able to wield because it cannot put sanctions off on something that it desperately needs from a hostile country. So that's one, it's it's more diplomatic um, power to exercise. Two, um, it's a zero carbon emitting energy. And so like the, the big drive in energy in the past couple of decades has been to move into that space. Now, it's not been successful, unfortunately. Vast amounts of money has been spent and the returns have not been. In fact, the costs have been well over what was was hoped for. So nuclear can provide that. And the good part is that because there's been such advances in material science and in the SMR space, those costs will come down considerably once these power plants are being launched. So nuclear is only expensive because of the time it can take to put into the ground the upfront capital costs, which translates to big financing costs. And so if you look at um, a, a big civil nuclear power plant, 70% of the cost of that capital costs are financing-related costs to pay for that upfront capital. But once you produce smaller reactors, that big capital cost diminishes enormously, so the financing cost goes away. So the cost of nuclear energy is going to come down considerably. So you're going to end up with, eventually, it being the cheapest option for energy. And so that's the next big thing. So you've got energy sovereignty, you've got, um, and then you've also got the fact that it can be locationally to put anywhere. So like, renewables cannot be put wherever you want from the start. So that rules a lot of them out. And the fact is that when you have remote locations that require fossil fuels like diesel, they need constant logistical support to ship in on a daily basis that diesel to support that infrastructure or that business or or that habitation. Um, nuclear does not need that kind of refueling. You could put a micro-reactor down or an SMR reactor down, and that would power something for 15 to 20 years without needing any type of intervention for fuel. And so the uh, that, is, that has enormous benefits, and that's why even the, the military are looking at this, because they, they have big military bases all around the world. Those things almost exclusively run on diesel the issue there is that they're a lot, a lot of the time in hostile areas where that means you need to bring in diesel on a daily basis. That creates an enormous amount of manpower protection that's required. If you have a, um, a, a nuclear reactor that just powers the base for 50 years, that all goes away. And so you can see how that convenience will translate to any remote location. Um, and so I, I think nuclear is going to be transformative. I think you're going to see bunker fuel in the big shipping vessels being replaced by nuclear reactors because we know it works already. The U.S. Navy has powered dozens of aircraft carriers and submarines around the world for decades without incidents, all powered by nuclear zero carbon. So you're going to see that translate into the private sector. 
Um, and even big companies like Microsoft, they're big data centers. They, if they want those things to be remote, they are, at the moment they have to power them almost predominantly on fossil fuels. They don't want that. They want those things to be able to, and, and that means logistical uh, importation of, um, of these fuels. A nuclear reactor can sit there and power these big data centers for 20 years, and they don't need to worry about the power. So that kind of transition is going to be enormously transformative on a global scale, not just an estimate. Um, I wonder how much explaining you guys have to do for educating on what nuclear energy is and if you've had any roadblocks. So um, it does happen that I think nuclear suffers very poorly from a, a reputation that's not really deserved it. Um, in terms of things like, like we get our safety questions, terrorist questions, things like that. And just to touch on those quickly, we always try and point out that you know, nuclear is the safest form of energy that's ever been Like, if you look at deaths per gigawatt hour, it beats out wind, it beats out the solar, it actually beats out everything. Um, there's some, a lot of misconceptions, like a nuclear reactor from start can't blow up um, or anything like that. It can't be turned into a bomb and people ask us questions like, what about a dirty bomb? Their the fuel within a reactor is not enriched to explode. To, to the level that it's needed to, to create a bomb. You, it's several order of magnitude less than that. You, I think the idea of a dirty bomb is that you just blow up uranium and then you need to just pick it up and it's inconvenient. But it's not, actually, if you blow up a reactor with a missile or something like that, the reactor actually becomes less dangerous because it's, you've, you've separated the material. Because the way a reactor works is you, you push um, enough uranium together that it creates enough um, reactions that creates a chain effect that releases energy. If you separate that uranium, that chain effect goes away, so it actually becomes more safe. Um, so there's there's very little risk to nuclear. It's already the same. Uh, the reactors are going to get even safer because once you start reducing the size of a reactor, like from a big civil power plant to an SMR or a micro-reactor, the, the parts within them become fewer, mechanical components become fewer, the working parts become fewer, so the, the mechanism for failure, uh, the mechanisms for failure become reduced in number two. So it's the safest energy that's going to get even safer. Um, and concerns outside of um, that we get asked about, which we only ever get asked, say, by people who aren't involved in the nuclear industry about terrorist threats or something like that. They, there's no there's no risk on that front. I mean, a, a terrorist stole a microreactor. The, the best thing he could hope for is to. I don't know, power his, I don't know, power his home or something like that, because you can't, you couldn't take the material out and do anything useful. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I think there needs to be a general effort within the nuclear industry to try and communicate things, because even when, say, accidents happen like Fukushima or Three Mile Island, nobody dies in those instances. Um, it's still instances where it's just inconvenient cleanup. And I think that needs to be remembered. But radiation can sometimes be one of those um, sort of irrational fears that develop very naturally in humans because it's a, it's, a, it's a danger you can't see. And for, for that reason, I think it, it commands a disproportionate amount of alarm, I think, in the general population that aren't familiar with just how safe the industry is. Hmm. Jay, do you think that 
the future is nuclear? Is that why you've invested so heavily in this? Yeah, so when I formed nanonuclear, my approach was innovation. And when I look into nuclear, I saw it was a kind of, there was no innovation in terms of, it was just all these big reactors. And there was a lot of these small ones that were coming up, but it seemed pretty slow and kind of like the energy, you could say, was lacklustered in terms of just interest. And that's what I, I like to do. I want to look into a sector that no one's looking at, but that I'm placing big, a big bet on that I think it's going to come back. Did it come back in a very opportune time? Yes. Um, was I willing to ride it out for many, many years? Yes. Uh, so I think the main, the main, like quote I would say out there from a from a big financial person was uh, Larry Fink of BlackRock, the chairman. He said the next thousand unicorns aren't social media companies or search engines. It's clean energy, green energy and technologies that, that are going to change the world um, and to make it a greener place. And that kind of reinforced my thesis into this. And ever since then, you know, like James said, he, he says this is probably the best time startup that he's seen. And um, we've built something special here because we surrounded ourselves with the best of the best in the world. And, um, and people will soon see that, uh, you, you know, what we're doing and we're, we're going to be a announcing a lot of tremendous, um, you know, milestones for us that we'll be reaching this year as well. So I'm excited about the future and, 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 you know, all this government support and worldwide support in the nuclear renaissance is, it's just adds kind of fuel to the fire of what we're doing. This has been Report to Wyoming, presented in the public interest by Town Square Media.